Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much, Owen and Kate, for inviting me to uh, talk to you all tonight in the Royal Academy. It's a great pleasure for me and something that I think uh, is a wonderful reversal of the Antipodean experience to come back to England from where my family and so many people that inhabit our part of the world have come from and find a place here willing to listen and uh, appreciate our stories. So, this building likes me is the name of our, our book and, and the name of this lecture. In considering a, an introduction, I considered the term inventing practice, which is uh, an opportunity to actually provide a voice to our, the staff within our practice. We started off as a, as a practice of one, me, 30 years ago this month, um, and are now 75-odd. But we thought of a way of actually introducing uh, the work of our practice and, and our methodologies is to actually give them a voice. And so in part of the book, we actually um, we lunched them and fed them and set them all down and interviewed them about their experiences of working with our practice. So inventing practice really could imply some sort of grand plan, it's something that actually executes uh, a vast strategy for the work. But in our practice, there's never been a grand plan, never at all. It's more about learning through experimentation and a feeling of optimism and somehow the gradual improvement uh, over time and knowing where ideas may start from but not knowing quite where they may lead us. So as a practice, our staff talked about doing houses, which was our genesis, but the fact is a large practice now that doesn't need to do houses. We don't treat them as a stepping stone. We continue to, continue to do them, and they actually embody many of the strategies that we upscale into our larger work. We consider and distract ourselves with passion for views and, and the, the appreciation that windows are actually oculi, the place and habitation within the domestic realm into the much larger realm beyond, and orchestrate both the windows themselves and signpost views and strategies for engagement with the world beyond with the architecture that actually settles into place in the residential setting. Australians live largely on the coastal edge. Many of our houses are coastal houses that appreciate the qualities of living on the coast. We often venture into the countryside and produce a series of country houses, particularly those that experience the materiality that somehow uh, really exemplifies the nature of the earth that they're built solidly upon. We have a fascination with silhouettes. I'd have to say an obsession with silhouettes, which take us from a country house such as this, such as a farmhouse in a, in, in a rural area north of Melbourne, to our largest ever project in the way a new city building uh, for Westfield may appear and change the silhouette of the city of Sydney. And when getting right down into the detail of their interiors, employing many of the strategies of materiality and shaping and forming of, of, of materials into the componentry that, that surrounds a civic space, where uh, we find shared, we shared experience between those of inhabitation of a house and a major city building. We're also very pleased to cajole our clients into an appreciation of their responsibility to create civic space out of a commercial brief and frequently find that in major city projects we're creating new laneways or courtyard settings on, on private land that actually change the map of the city that we build in. And this project, now one of our older projects in the city of Melbourne, does just that. 
We're fascinated by the fifth elevation and the way that the, the ceilings can form uh, a special bond with the interior to create almost time clocks that will uh, nestle into place uh, activities that, that seem to suggest activities uh, related to the time of the, the day. So we can draw light in and exclude it throughout the life of the activities within a building over a given day. We work on research buildings and appreciate very much this uh, remarkable enlightened patron that the university can often be, particularly with their research facilities. And the kind of programs they may have as research programs uh, for the, uh, the activities within the building may very well uh, enlighten those civic activities beyond the campus as the, 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 need, the means for experimentation actually can be harnessed from work on a small campus into the realm of the larger city beyond. We can often diminish the, the traditional walls of a university campus and invert those to actually signpost activities and create cultural mores that are expressed onto the, the grittiness of a city street, as the new architecture school at the University of South Australia endeavours to do. And often convert conversations, and this one with a remarkable vice-chancellor of that same university, who talked about this, how essential it was that we create a timeless building for their contemporary art museum, the Hawke Building. In the case of sort of creative disobedience, argued back that perhaps buildings shouldn't be timeless, but in fact very much of their time, and maybe we could create a building that charted the course of time by putting two disparate materials, copper and concrete, together, one that, is that absolutely wants to stain the other, and over time a vertigree of copper would stain through these carefully placed channels in the, in the concrete panels to actually record the, the, the span of time itself. And look at how we can actually take a client in two directions by further appreciating their history and the knowledge of their place in time, but are rapidly transporting them into another place. So the work for uh, Melbourne Grammar School, one of the oldest uh, educational uh, campuses in Australia and taking that into a new territory, as they decreed they wanted to be taken. So we looked very carefully at what already existed in that campus and the ashlar qualities of this basalt uh, structure of the, of the buildings, something that was in, inexorably um, uh, symmetrical and formally composed, was made out of the stuff of something that was completely random and, and other, and that all of the windows were multi-pane windows, and maybe we could actually... Uh, create a new building that actually um, immediately adjacent to these buildings that did both. There was a new form of ashlar construction rendered large out of steel and glass but created new forms of multi-pane windows that would expose the interior workings of this uh, new library building to the world beyond. And invent a new bond, it's a sort of a bastardised Flemish bond that would actually suggest the books on the library shelves immediately behind that wall to give some faint registering of the kind of purpose that the building has been made for. And in doing so, uh, redirect uh, the nature of the campus edge condition from one of solid walls to one of open engagement to the world beyond. And play, playfully take from one hemisphere to the other, as Queen's College and Melbourne University was referring in our new plan for a, a new college area uh, to Queen's College in Oxford. But taking from that playful association the nature of Court, the courtyard setting and the model of reducing the scale of a large institution down to the inhabitation of the staircase model, again taken from that other university in another hemisphere. So the nature of the courtyard setting and the staircase model became the primary ordering device for a contemporary building at another university.
and we enter lots of competitions. Uh, and this is one of a few years ago. We worked with uh, Grimshaw in their Melbourne office, one of the five finalists for the Flinders Street Railway competition. We looked very carefully at the sorts of ambitions that we had for, the new, for uh, this massive redevelopment in our city, but did so far with the knowledge, uh, the acute knowledge that we had of that city. And one of the features of that is a series of beautiful old 19th century brick vaults. We created our own brick vaults that, that disfigure to align with different view corridors along the Yarra River to actually open up something that's currently blocked by railway lines and inflect lines of association between the means of arrival into the city and it's one of its greatest assets, the Yarra River. And appreciate that people gather together in civic spaces for different reasons and in Melbourne it's often that we have these, a series of civic ceilings and maybe we could create this remarkable... Um, uh, reflective civic ceiling that would, that would um, amplify the kind of new associations of activities beneath it. We didn't win the competition. We're interested in the act of making and where things come from. So in our view into our own living room at home and, and sitting beneath this painting of Gareth Sampson, one of Australia's remarkable painters, you'll see a picture of his house in a minute, I assembled uh, a series of, 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 of collected elements over time. And when I look at them very carefully, I notice they both relate to moments in time but also moments in places and celebrate the nature of making and the kind of cultural imperatives of various societies from around the world. And this is interesting to us. It's when we look at uh, the primary reason for settlement in so many parts of the world, it often has been inherently linked to the process of making and manufacture and craft uh, where raw materials may have... Uh, infused with the, the technical, technological processes of making pottery, created the settlement of Stoke-on-Trent. Geelong, where I came from, was the centre of the wool industry, and so the textile mills of, the, of, um, of Geelong formulated the patterns of both employment and engaged, cultural engagement and that of making in our city. We lament in some ways the loss of these skills of making. Um, uh, McKay Brothers have just closed for business. They've made remarkable things for us for 20 years. Their business started here in this city in the early Victorian era, five generations ago. Uh, their ability to make exquisite things such, well, I think it's exquisite, this uh, jewellery box that I designed some years ago that sits about this high and takes up a lot of space in a, in a room, was uh, the timber of which was actually taken from racks that their father had had collected of, of this celery top pine, a very rare Tasmanian timber, some 40 years earlier. So that is a lament, and I think this aspect of globalisation causes such lament. But it also isn't just a melancholic appreciation of craft. I think there are reasons also to be optimistic. There are new forms of craft as digital fabrication aligns ourselves as architects and other forms of creative uh, uh, professionals more directly with the cutting and forming machines of industry so that new forms of craftsmanship are there as ready participants in the 21st century. We think it's very interesting. Architects are often receivers of patronage and in, in some way that kind of ang anxious canniness which is hallmarks our profession um, is so much of our character. We think it's very good to invert that and be commissioners of others. And we've, it's a skill we've developed over the last decade or so of commissioners of, of artworks. And over a series of major public artworks around Australia, we have been the commissioning agents to commission, to write the briefs and orchestrate the activities as a, of a series of artists. 
And in doing so, I've got to know artists well. This is the house of Gareth Sampson that's just celebrated its 10th anniversary. Um, a remarkable painter and an association that's enlivened our practice for the last decade. And when we engaged Peter Kennedy to do a remarkable 30 metre long neon work that formed the, the primary appearance of our last office in the city of Melbourne as we moved out to industrial Collingwood, um, the, 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 the resetting of that artwork and the recommissioning of Peter to wrap it around this small laneway setting was something that was inherently important to us. We arrived here and purchased this building in this state. Uh, Collingwood is a little bit like your Brick Lane, where, where the original industrial zone most closely attached itself to the centre of commerce in the centre of the city. We looked very carefully at the, at the raw history that's still very much evident in this region. But the specific history of our building, designed in England um, uh, by Goodless Wall, and an English paint company in Liverpool, and this was their outpost in the Southern Hemisphere. So working with its history was very much part of our approach. We also looked at carefully at the aspirations, the planning aspirations of uh, our city of Yarra and the aspirations that this, uh, the, the form of industry that was once there would be transformed into new forms of industry, and this became a theme for our building. So as we designed a new building uh, to link onto the original, we looked very carefully at uh, exhibiting the characteristics inherent in the air, obviously abstracting them, bringing them into this century, but finding a building that was a transition between the raw industrial buildings of the past and the, uh, the needs for inhabitation of an organisation such as ours in the 21st century. But to the spirit of that act of making, we, we wanted to share our building with others. We needed to, it cost a very expensive process. We needed tenants. Um, and so we gathered together around ourselves a series of people that made things, a cafe that made all its own food, uh, a remarkable spacecraft studios that do incredible work with textiles and public artwork and bus projects, an artist-run collective with studio spaces for young artists. And in doing those, that also re-established our own principles of inhabitation in the building and look at the way that we would work within a building that identified as much as in, in much, many of those aspirations we have for civic space, um, small moments of gathering within a larger uh, setting. It allowed us to also then rework as a practice and we have monthly lectures called On Top of the World where we invite artists to speak to architects uh, and quarterly um, commission artists to um, design a new flag for our flagpole and with much merriment raise it into the sky uh, once each quarter of the year. And, and to, to, to herald that, you'll notice we, when Porsche uh, changed their massive signage some years ago, we turned the C and O of Porsche into the O and N of On to let people know when we're in. <laughs> well, that was a very lengthy in, uh, introduction. So to fourth, I've, rather than take you through large amounts of small, uh, large areas of small projects, I'm going to draw you through a series of four themes and to harness together aspects, smaller aspects of a, of a great series of projects that gather together some of the primary interests we have. Memory and form, it's often interesting to, as architects to, to look at sort of the cognitive processes of how we relate and recall history, and it's often through recalling a particular type of causal relationship between a moment in history and a form of, of, of a part of a building that creates it. And often then there are interesting relationships between two aspects of this. A shoe that I bought in 1986 from a Japanese designer has some remarkable similarities to a vase designed by Josiah Wedgwood in uh, Stoke-on-Trent in 1810. So near our office, 
uh, is, is, is a commission that we've just received for a new commercial building. We've created, we've appreciated the laneways that exist, the gritty nature of the, of the buildings that once were and still are, and many of which will be retained. We insisted with our client on the retention of as many buildings as possible, but recalled the past. One thing that's being lost from our area of Collingwood, the remarkable sawtoothed roofs. Um, that, that drew light into vast industrial buildings. So we've created a sawtooth wall. It's does, it works exactly on the same principles. It draws in south light, excludes north and west of the hot Australian sun, uh, and opens to view the, the, uh, this organisation's activities over five storeys. We've also created a new laneway, again on private land, which is something we're very pleased with, to make sure as new buildings are created in, in an old landscape that we don't reduce that... Uh, important aspect of scale and, and, and texture. And what, to reduce the, the scale of a large building, we've drawn together um, a smaller version of it. We've, we've matched the colouration and tonality, but in another material of raw concrete, and drawn together this small companion building that does something else. On a roof, it creates the only small park-like setting in this otherwise um, landscapeless zone of industrial Melbourne. In complete opposite, and in opposite to our experience as architects, uh, we frequently venture down to a small island off the coast of Tasmania, so about the most southern port, a point in Australia. This is uh, the island of uh, the Bruni Island, uh, on very a very historic landscape, first established by Captain James Kelly, the founder of Tasmania's whaling industry in the 1830s. So this little house here is actually older than any building standing in Melbourne. It goes back to, to virtually Georgian, to absolutely Georgian times. The only evidence we had of another building that was, was from this old photo, and there was something of uh, the building of a shearing shed that sat in behind it. And, and our speculation was it actually a gable or a skillion, and we thought, well, playfully, maybe we could do a building that does both. These are the primary forms of uh, industrial agricultural sheds. So maybe we could design a building that was a skillion at one end, but opened up to a gable at the other as it acknowledged its relationship to Captain Kelly's original cottage. And in doing so, creating something that looks inexorably simple, but is, um, it was a particularly difficult item to build, as it leaned back into the landscape, pitching points of ridge and ridges subtly moved in opposite directions to create a building that at first seems most shed-like on approach, but as we come round and reveal its northern face it becomes much more a vehicle for inhabitation and then its alignment is very much that of an alignment with the, the original cottage. In coming inside, we could look playfully at, a at those two sheep. This is a real photo, uh, looking in at the, book, in the bookcase. Um, the plan in flex, so to our convenience, the plan that opens up toward the north to the greater volume creates a living space that uh, enjoys a series of views. We're very careful to try and draw out the skills of any community. As we found this remarkable steel fabricator, I keep giving him harder and harder things to do to test his skill um, as the relationship developed over a lengthy period of time. But the setting of the house is absolute and absolutely describes its location to the two pivotal points of, of this setting, which is the view up toward the shearing shed and the view out toward the coast. And that, that those view lines toward disparate elements of the landscape became the characteristic that actually settled the house into its landscape setting. And as we walk along the hallway, it marks exactly the centre of this plan that merges, merges and transforms along its length from skillion to gable. 
Partway through the journey, I'd been collecting Apple technology. There's an interesting link with England again. Here in 1970-71, when England joined the common market, overnight it killed the Tasmania's uh, Apple industry and all the, the boxes ready to make the next day's shipment of apples to go to head toward England stopped being made and, and all of the apple sheds of the district are full of the, all of the box timber, 50 years old, but ready to make the next day's boxes. So I started to collect it for use um, within the shed. I'd be embarrassed to tell you how long it took me to work out this pattern where with only two small fixings we could actually lap them and hold them into place for all of the cross walls of the, of the building. I think a whole of very can, canny Tasmanian orchardists are now with your post-Brexit post voting are starting to plant, plant apple trees again. <laughs> and here it is in its relationship to the historic cottage in its setting. From there to a much larger project... Um, from you, some of you may have heard of Mona, a remarkable art gallery in South Australia by a private uh, citizen, citizen who built a $100 million art gallery for a $200 million art collection. We're doing a, a fascinating project for him. From their visit to that cottage came this project. They own a remarkable 3,500 acres of, of an incredible landscape on eastern Tasmania and its setting is a historic, uh, an old historic farmhouse. We look very carefully at the nature and the history of that farmhouse and its five or six different primary outbuildings and shearing sheds. And in doing so, wanted to create what he wanted, which was a vast new facility uh, for tourists to come and stay, and, but at the same time not overwhelming the scale, scale of that small, humble cottage. So rather than inflate the scale of that, we've created what will be 16 disparate and separate buildings around the site that house cooking schools and theatres and artist residents and all sorts of things um, uh, to create a new community of building on this historic site. This is as it will appear when construction commences early next year. But out of it, we gave ourselves a discipline or ordering device. We looked at the, at, at the old cottage, which is there in the background, and a lost veranda, one thing that had been taken many years ago. So we, our starting point was to actually reconstruct that veranda and appreciate what verandas were, in, in, particularly in Australia, they were often an inhabited spaces, the kids or the... Um, or the younger members of the family would often sleep out on the, on the veranda. So that veranda became our datum and the floor line an absolute line for, to, to start to assemble a whole series of new elements that all spun off from that re recreated moment of lost history. So new areas for inhabitation, for living, sleeping areas and massive new living wing and then a bridge all align themselves with millimetre perfect the datum of both the floor and the pitching point of that veranda. So that veranda then also became our ordering device for the rhythm and texture of the whole experience uh, of, the, of, of this ordering, but also then the pitch and the alignment of a whole series of new roof structures that were created. Three primary new living spaces form under the one, well, ostensibly the one roof, but really like three tents on the edge of a river, three small uh, triangular roofs, all which engage... Um, to give the impression of a, a separate identity or a separate space for inhabitation, but somehow linked together uh, in their alignment with the existing cottage. And this is how they'll appear, with some very complex skylights that are just out of view there. 
and the whole lot come together. So the idea there, you can see right in the centre, the recreated veranda, its three-metre rhythm of its primary structure becomes absolute as it passes through a whole series of new spaces out and beyond. And at an interesting point of the conversation where our a remarkable client asked whether we could fit baths in the, in the bathrooms in, in the, of the two rooms in the historic cottage. We said, no, we couldn't. He said, well, we, we must get baths somehow. I suggested a bathhouse. He thought that would be a good idea. I said, well, if we put the bathhouse on the other side of the river, we can actually have a bridge, a bridge to the bathhouse. So the adventure went on. So here, veranda becomes roof that then extends out, distorts to become uh, a bridge that crosses the river to the bathhouse. So we wanted a particular... Tasmanian bathing, bathing experience. So when you consider the two primary characteristics of water, the way it can arrive at Earth at its most thunderous and violent in the, in the form of a rainfall or a, water, a rainstorm or a waterfall, and at its most tranquil. And if any of you have ever seen Bulviola's Tristan Ascension, uh, one of the most remarkable video artworks I've ever experienced, this became central to our um, thinking of how we could arrange, orchestrate these spaces. Um, so these two... Oh, our client said maybe it could be like falling water, so here's our version of Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, he's a mathematician. He's a, a remarkable mathematician, this guy, um, and, and requires logic in everything and sees, sees patterns also in things. As we pr produced this plan, he actually then educated us on his knowledge of the Mandelbrot set, uh, set and, 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 and the formula of proportion that, uh, that is, extends from it. And that became then the plan for our uh, rather, rather eccentric bathhouse. So we leave the bridge, we arrive, we see it through the mists, it appears our three-metre spacing of those posts become the three-metre spacing of these puffs of concrete uh, that um, continue to rotate around the whole, whole form. We search out uh, the entry, eventually find it three-quarters of the way around the other side of the, uh, of the circle, find our way in. There's a, stairs up to an upper, st upper storey where the massage and treatment rooms and spas and all sorts of things occur, or straight through into the central bathing area where this circular waterfall affects the plan as its central element. There's other elements such as uh, spas and soreness and so forth at this level. But we arrive in through into the waterfall... Uh, and it's cold, insensibly cold. It is the coldest state of Australia, Tasmania. Um, and then from there, through again these curved glass panels, out into the hot pool that cantilevers over the creek setting and looks back toward the rest of the development. As it will appear, and a small model that we've just presented to them as we celebrated the end of the design phases and, and painted it with 30-carat gold leaf paint. <laughs> And also how we can recall from one to the other the kinds of, of thing, knowledge we have of civic spaces. And there's, um, uh, we were asked this last year to design the inaugural NGV and National Gallery of Victoria Summer Pavilion. And in doing so, uh, in their garden, decided to recall an interesting moment of history. And there's a bit of knowledge that I had uh, of a poem. C.J. Dennis, a wonderful Australian poet, was engaged in the 1930s to celebrate the opening of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And he wrote, I dips me lid to the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which means he paid due reference to this remarkable achievement. Playfully, we changed one Sydney to another and looked from Sydney Harbour Bridge to the Sydney Mire Music Bowl. Sydney Mire was a great uh, patron of Melbourne, in, uh, a retailer that donated money for the Sydney Mire Music Bowl in the 1950s, so the middle of the last century. So we playfully copied 
some aspects of that remarkable civic space that he required, that he, that he created for our city. We appreciated that Melbourne is a city of civic ceilings. Leonard French uh, and Burley Griffin and Murray and Marnie had created, and others have created remarkable civic ceilings, so we decided that our structure needed a civic ceiling. In their haste, the NGV sent this out to the world as the, the impression of the new um, pavilion before we'd worked out how to build it or, or stand it up anyway. You'll notice there's no structure holding up that fabric. <laughs> We spent six months working on the fabric as well as the uh, grid shell tensile structure that would then support it. So from one century inflecting toward the next, um, the, the tensile structure of the mid-20th century to a grid cell structure of the early 21st became the setting for our new civic space. Artificial ground, we think it's really interesting the way we often treat ground, ground both with care but also... I think with a degree of rigour where we often shape or cajole it into place and where it doesn't suit our purposes, we change it um, and look very carefully at, at the way we do so. We also appreciate that ground uh, has a sort of a setting in different places that becomes um, a, a sort of a, a portal to our engagement or understanding of those places. So in Tasmania, the, the, our Australia's new Centre for International Studies for the Southern Oceans and Antarctica, um, was a commission that we won some years ago. We looked very carefully at building on this cove floor, so some artificial ground a, 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 of concrete, amazing concrete structure that extended their port um, in nearly 100 years ago to create a building that would actually bring together a raft of scientists from different institutes but find some commonality in their research into the, into the care and maintenance of our southern oceans and right through to Antarctica. But above all else, it was to be a new building in a working port, a remarkable thing. So this is, a, this is very much a working port, and we were to create um, the new port workers, a series of academics that would work in a shed, like all of the sheds, the sheds that used to transport apples to England and parts to the rest of the world in their export policy from this small state would now export the skills of those involved in the research of the ocean edge. So shed light structures and extruded structures were, were developed as our form for the building and a new shed was created on the waterfront, but a very transparent shed and one that would actually signpost to these new wharf workers, people in white coats involved in experimentation, would link both it's the civic setting of that city with um, direct connection and live feeds to experimentation done both within the building but also uh, into Antarctica. <coughs> And to one of our glorious failures, um, we were one of the five invited entrants into the uh, design of Australia's Venice Pavilion in the Giardini in Venice on uh, reclaimed land in the Giardini. We looked very carefully at, at the way, like a bridge-like, we would transport a series of ideas from one country to give them relevance into another. We look very much at the terracotta, which is <coughs> one of the visual senses of uh, the experience of Venice, and, and again, a, a fragment of knowledge that we had that in the early 20th century, Australia's terracotta industry, now lost, was set up by Australian immigrants, and we thought maybe we could create a new terracotta building that brought um, some uh, Australian ingenuity and ochres from each of the, Australia, the, the states around Australia, and then take, transport those to the Veneto, where their terracotta industry is now under threat from uh, cheaper products from elsewhere in the world and could do with new business. So 
we created uh, a new chamber for Australian art that was very much aware of its setting on this reclaimed edge on a canal, opened it up to the experience of the canal, but created a new system that we felt would harness some kind of uh, narrative between our two nations. And in doing so, also sought to have a more subtle connection as we looked at the form of our building and appropriated the form of the closest Palladian villa to Venice and suggested somewhere some link you know, in that memory and form that would link the two. A very large building, the largest university building that we have ever created, uh, or we're about to create, its construction has commenced on a 30,000 square metre building for Monash University in Melbourne. Um, and landscape like, it's a building that appreciates the cultivation of landscape and looking very carefully at the settlement patterns over time from indigenous bushland, colonial farmland, suburban subdivision and then in the 1960s the creation of a new Monash University campus. And the way that we could actually create an extension of that landscape setting from both the obvious signs of those that are recalled and, and noticed on site at the moment but also then draw back into the history of the landscape of that site. And look very carefully and see if we could shift away from the modernist standalone tower-like building that is one of the hallmarks of that 1960 campus and see if we could lay that same, mat, that same mass flat to the earth and create a broad, shallow building of only four storeys high that would draw, allow us to sort of draw these landscape analogies as settings uh, within a plan far more readily than we could uh, with a more vertical formatted building. So a series of strategies were developed for this massive um, four-storey building. And we looked very carefully at the language of landscape tactics at play. We're looking at the way we can actually orchestrate what appears to be very much a landscape setting and, and express the picturesque, I, I guess, in some ways, and appreciate that link between architectural qualities and the described or the revealed landscape and the way that, uh, that this has always been, so often been orchestrated so successfully to create civic imperatives in otherwise more secular environments. So we created, we looked very carefully at, at streets and courtyards and bridges and balconies and staircases taking on um, the more the character of, of um, of clearings and strands and, and escarpments and so forth, more landscape elements that one might find in appreciating a broad open landscape. And looked at the means of linking over those four storeys <coughs> into this inhabited roof space that sits above this mat plan so that we can also appreciate the scale and the setting of being up within the form uh, of, a, of a roof and it can inhabit that roof in much the way we would a, a much smaller building such as a house and sitting in amongst a dormant ceiling. But in the same way being able to, like we do with so many of our buildings, chart the course of time and the effects of light throughout the, 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 the working day um, and draw light into this broad plan beneath. Partway through this uh, family trip we spent uh, uh, to a place I'd always wanted to go to, Stoke-on-Trent, Last Christmas we celebrated an English Christmas and fascinated by these remarkable bottle kilns in Stoke-on-Trent and proposed uh, something that um, drew on that narrative and build our own bottle kilns in the, uh, in the centre of this vast series of escarpments and in discussion with the Vice-Chancellor of that university discussed the parallels between making fine china uh, and, and the processes of making it something remarkable and durable that is also akin to the making fine ceramics. 
and so the, the students freely associate in unscripted space in the in the uh, in the in the kiln space beneath, and inhabit the spaces above that. Again, in a series of whole variants of, of scripted activities, a timetable throughout the academic calendar. And then from another form of landscape where we actually um, leave the Earth's surface to cross over a major road, this bridge which is currently under construction will link Melbourne's major parkland and the, the edge of our city with the Australian Open and our tennis centre. As you watch the Australian Open this summer, I hope all things going well, this will be the, the primary gateway from the city into our tennis centre. As we do, again, recalling history, somewhere along that journey we, we noted a place that's barely recalled in Melbourne, which is our speaker's corner, a space for every man or woman who wants to have a voice and stand upon a soapbox and talk to a, generally a very small audience in an open setting. And we create, use the bridge to deviate at one critical moment to create an upper dress circle to the speaker's corner below, below and a, pause, a, stop, a stopping place for pause and reflection. Uh, an appreciation of both a moment in history but also the parkland setting before heading headlong over a busy, city, a busy Melbourne street into the tennis centre. And on the way, picking up the texture of the leaf matter and uh, branch, small branches of the grove of elm trees uh, and, and form the architecture of our bridge as a, as a companion to that setting. And as if it's walking itself across the street, our, the, the structure of our bridge appears... Um, like a series of legs in the action of walking to link from one side of a busy road to another. The nature of ocular has always fascinated us and the fact that we don't just create windows but somehow we create an oculus that is more than a window but it's also a vehicle for planning the accordance with space with the world beyond. Here, a small speculation in a, another lost competition some years ago, we looked at lessening the critical mass of a, of a large uh, view out across the ocean and actually just aligning... Uh, the view with, and, and the viewing aperture with just the essential aspects of the horizon and a series of major points of, re of reference uh, on either side of, of that view line. Um, most recently, gosh, after start showing you our bitter disappointment with losing the Venice um, Biennale competition, um, there was a competition in, in Melbourne a year ago for architects to become more interested in designing tapestries from our remarkable Australian tapestry workshop. Uh, we entered that competition and, uh, and the speculation was that the competition, uh, the, the, the um, tapestry would sit in the new Australian pavilion. I think probably with not necessarily a sort of the sore losers aspect to this, but we'd created one thing. The, the, the winners, DCM, provided a remarkable pavilion but stuck absolutely to the brief. I should have said earlier that we didn't and we thought we knew better, but the, the brief was for a, um, for a white cube. Um, and we, we created something other than, than that. Uh, and so in designing a tapestry for the space, we suggested one thing that uh, we thought um, would be interesting was uh, something that actually orchestrated perspective views. There is no better lesson in the world than Palladio and Schmuzzi's uh, Teatro Olimpico in Vicenza, that, uh, that remarkable theatre with these series of five streets with their orchestrated and distended and exaggerated perspectives one to the, to the next. So we got that, we changed it somewhat into this new pavilion by inventing a new little, uh, an invented building or a building from somewhere other that would actually sit between, uh, in, within the space and draw 
toward the viewer rather than Shamuzi's uh, um, theatre sets away to create this, these new perspectives and this tapestry was designed. It duly won the competition and is currently being made. So it actually, and it's remarkable, we, we, I think we won it the thing that gave us great advantage was absolutely no knowledge of tapestry making. And apparently it's the most difficult tapestry that they've ever made. It's just these subtle gradations of colour move in various directions to suggest um, the effect of light and place, as if somewhere you'll be looking into somewhere other. And one of them suggests maybe it's a, a, a perspective out onto a canal, or one of them's very much morning light and another evening. And it's suggesting a whole series of competing perspectives in a in a space that's otherwise neutral. And from another form of oculi, a house that looks across the, a remarkable section of coastline in central Victoria, and a series of oculi have, have orchestrated our arrangement of spaces within the building into five different strands that pick, each pick out a different part of the remarkable panorama beyond. So they jostle and find place on the north side um, as we arrive at the front elevation of the building, we arrive through this passageway that orchestrates the first impression of the space beyond. It carves up and subdivides this panoramic view into a series of view corridors, each that um, are also in their sort of association with the kinds of activities within, harness and accentuate the experience of a series of different spaces. So from the living space, we start to look out to one particular point in the, the, uh, the coastline. I should say it also opens up in the other direction to draw in uh, northern sun into the plan. And at each point, as we go head upstairs, uh, the bedrooms, another one of these chambers, the study, another, an upper-level roof terrace, another, all the, which orchestrate a different part of this alignment with different aspects of the view beyond. And a commission such as that reduces itself down to the minute detail of the design of a dining table where we playfully suggest the way each, di each dinner plate should be incised into the, um, the very fine edge of the dining table. To another form of oculi, about a year ago, or no, right at the start of this year, we won the competition for Melbourne's new Conservatorium of Music. Now, this is a kind of uh, uh, a building that sits in a very public place that doesn't want to be there because really it's all about very internalised, very exacting, highly prescribed, acoustically attenuated spaces, none of which they actually want to be sitting out on the, on the public realm. So working very carefully with our client and our acousticians, our whole strategy was how, as much as possible, we could find every, every opportunity to open up some aspect of those internalised activities and orchestrate them in some method to actually expand upon the experience in the part of this part of Melbourne's public realm. So we describe this as, as an open invitation and it's a, a means of, of not only having a view but actually means of operating those view, uh, view corridors or apertures into different parts of the building. So we built a model that looked, it looked at actually um, the, the setting for all of those spaces, both major and minor, recalibrating those that we could and orchestrating the most collaborative activities and drawing those to the front facade of, the, of a busy city street. And where possible, are looking at ways that we could um, open up view lines from a very public place to one that had to be much more acoustically secure. So the first of these is into Studio One, and in my process of editing this very long talk, I did cut out the small video that's just been made by this remarkably nutty person who's helping us make, uh, work out how to hell we'll 
build our roll-away window that actually will roll away to moments of, of uh, acoustic certainty. Um, we must uh, provide roll-it-back and actually enclose the space utterly. With apologies to Hogarth, we wanted to look very much at how we could open those views and invite them in, but at the same time um, secure the activities of, that, are, that are within this uh, very specialised academy. So one vast wall of concrete in terracotta harnesses every opportunity for looking within from without. So from the outside, uh, a rotunda, a public <coughs> sound shell is... is um, uh, a place for free association of, of music at all, scripted at all times of the day and night, and, uh, which is the entrance also to a small public park that we designed as part of our competition entry. That wall wraps around and there's terracotta embedded in concrete um, to, to create this sort of um, this new version of an oculi back within the building and suggest almost also the, a, a shape that we might find in an ingle nook in a house and the setting around a, the hearth of a fireplace. And it draws us into both the various working areas of the plan but also the primary um, performance spaces within. An instrument of learning became another theme as we looked very carefully at the ways we could actually provide informal learning in parallel with those scripted by the academic timetable. And for each of the three primary um, performance spaces, viewing apertures were created to informal areas of free association within the plan. <coughs> and the working interior was very important. This wasn't to be a new performance building. We weren't designing a new um, performance space for Melbourne. It was a hard-working interior. We are creating the new workforce for this part of Melbourne. I should have said this is actually set within Melbourne's art precinct. And so we wanted to the, the audience to experience the character of walking, of, of, of that inversion, of actually walking into the major um, spaces, often to see their children upon graduation or at specific times of their performance, but walking in as if they're walking in from the back of the house. So it's essentially a very gritty, raw interior that actually harnesses the public spaces with the process of entry into these um, working chambers within. And, and again, working, teasing out every possible moment of collaborative activity that could be, that could be freed of the strictures of um, acute, uh, acoustic separation and drawing those to the outer face and the, and the city street. Scalelessness is another fascination. It's sort of an invented word. Um, I did my Masters in 2001 and it was one of the themes from that as we looked at very carefully at our um, fascination with scale, our scale as a practice, the way we often joint venture with others. And I should acknowledge um, that. Uh, many of these, pro pro of these projects, particularly as we work around Australia, um, we joint venture with other practices, so scalelessness becomes a, th a theme uh, in, in that manner. But also we, it can, we can look at how we detach ourselves from the conventions of scale and the way that we can find civic moments in a family home or the intense detail one may associate with a residential space in a vast commercial program. So that kind of inversion of scalelessness is something that is constantly a fascination for us. This is a small, every year it's a bit of a tradition of the practice, it's more in a form of apology than anything, I give a present to all of my staff and so, so after a particularly troublesome year a few years ago I designed them all a breakfast in bed tray <laughs> that um, 
that sort of typified the, the need at the end of that long year. So it takes a book, or, in fact it's got two settings, it takes either trashy novel or, or serious um, academic reading, egg cup, uh, vase and, and plates and, and so forth. So that's kind of scale almost of a civic setting becomes rendered down into a minute object. A, um, a coffee table designed some years ago in appreciation of my first ever collected object. As an architecture student, I collected this remarkable Scandinavian teapot uh, and um, years later designed a coffee table for it or a tea table for it. I was certain I was going to make my fortune out of this and sell it to Ikea and imagined a world where every household had one of these coffee tables until I saw the six join, uh, cabinet makers struggle to get it out of the truck and carry it up the driveway to our house. I'd, I designed it all out of st solid timber. It's never moved since, since it sets. It was firm, firmly to the floor into the centre of our family home. Or a series of vases that we've just designed with... Oh, I should have acknowledged Simon Lloyd, who worked with our office on the system of that, that terracotta system for our Venice Pavilion as a long-term collaborator with our practice and most recently a series of vases that paraphrase the kind of associations we might find in rooms within a house or places within a larger city plan and reduce those down to a scale of a small series of vases and each, each part of which is totally reliant on the other for the, um, for the purpose of that vase to um, serve as a bunch of flowers over their short week-long life. So to a project that we are currently working on, a remarkable commission for an art gallery for a private art collection in Sydney, we are doing one side, which is the art gallery. Uh, Janet Lawrence, uh, an Australian artist, is designing uh, the courtyard garden between, between and Durbeck Block Jaggers. Uh, friends of ours, a, a great Sydney firm of architects, are designing a performance space on the other side, all orchestrated by a furniture designer, Kai Lua, uh, one of Australia's greatest furniture designers. So a remarkable process of coming together in, a, in the collaborative enterprise with a series of different briefs that somehow had to be orchestrated into one plan. Partway through that, uh, we, my wife and I went on a walk through um, northern Italy and came upon this castle up in uh, the Piedmont area of Italy. It looked remarkably like what we'd been working on for the last year as we'd grafted on between two practices, endeavouring to design one facade between us, something that had been already orchestrated in the north of Italy over various iterative processes of further development of the one castle wall. One of the strategies of ours, again, with this fascination with oculi, but shifting the here, shifting the scale of such a small thing to render it large, was the effect that one might have of a very hard material by the implausibility of, of a very soft occurrence. So the fact that we'd create a brick structure but as a droplet of water may land on it and form the impression of a pool and a second <coughs> droplet may create the unsettling second uh, circular moment and to then turn that vertically create, could create our primary window system but inflect the whole of the facade into this very subtle dimple. Uh, it's a ra radius of about... 16 metres and it presses in only about 500 millimetres um, that has caused us to do the most remarkably concept, con complex set of drawings over the last 12 months to actually detail both window and wall. But out of that, another, another aspect, our fascination with this fifth elevation and the drawing of light into a very deep plan over five levels through these 
probably the most complex skylight sequence that we have ever designed into the, the upper floor of this space, but then looking at ways that we can then draw that light down through a series of voids down to the levels below. But seeing also, again, the idea that we could playfully subvert the characteristic of materials, we've been very influenced by the Japanese artist Noro Imai and the way he covers um, hard objects with a soft fabric, and we thought maybe we could treat a hard material, this brickwork, with a soft impression by treating it fabric life with this soft series of inflections that represent the spaces behind. So that, that series of skylights then um, draw toward the outer edge um, and are configured in a manner with which um, this, the impression of the soft fabric then may, may um, be affected by their presence behind. Will I come up? No, there's a video of that. We're patient. Well, it's not well. I'll describe it. So, well, here you can see it in, in real form. As now we're trying to actually form uh, the very difficult task of this very subtle shift in the alignment of bricks, specially made by a small family brickwork of brick, uh, brick makers that have been making bricks for us for many years. Uh, it's the clay from about five different quarries in three different states of Australia before we got the clay that was just as we would wish it to be and the bricks in exactly the proportion we'd like them to be to actually form to these very subtle s shifts of converging radial forms. And on that should go... Uh, into then the interior. A series of chambers, this three storeys, or, or effectively three storeys down into the ground, a means of drawing light down from the courtyard garden to this small ocular gallery uh, well below ground level. And the way that then we can look very carefully at the plans above and not only the spaces themselves but the means of egress up through the gallery to uh, experience these cross-sectional uh, characteristics of this rather complex building. Again, another distracted moment, a visit to Japan last year and to Tokaname, which is there, Stoke-on-Trent, and finding the factory that Frank Lloyd Wright set up in the 1920s with his joint Japanese joint venture partners still exists and asking them to make a special tile to actually surround this small gallery space that's suspended two storeys up in the air. And then at the, bottom, at the top of that gallery, over two floors, uh, an apartment that sits partway underneath these skylights, sharing the space with a library and other spaces, and drawing the smallest space in a large building in behind the largest of these vast windows. Into a project that, we're, that uh, is our most recently completed major commission, uh, we joint ventured with a large international competition with a firm from Boston called NADA. We knew of work, their work and admired it, and they'd been to Australia and visited our Melbourne Grammar building that I showed earlier and admired that. So it was a very quick coming together of people that knew each other only through the work of their practices. And what was fascinating to us both that we saw similarities in the results of our architectural endeavours but our processes were absolutely divergent. What was to our remarkable advantage is the time difference between Boston and Melbourne was such that we worked for 24 hours a day during the course of that, that international competition as we would Skype at the end of each day and the start of the next and hand over the baton day tonight uh, with NADA. That process of working together 
um, then became the process of the making of the building itself. The competition resulted in this being, building being the winner and then they're immediately scrapping the competition and the project for about 12 months, coming back 12 months later and breaking our hearts with an entirely new brief. <laughs> we had the job though, but the brief was a speculation on a whole series of different, uh, different uh, themes that were very dear to the heart of particularly Tom Cavan, the engineer of this brief and the dean of the faculty at that time. And his, uh, the foundation of that competition brief was to investigate ideas about built pedagogy and the nature of studio teaching and the experience of the studio dynamic across all forms of uh, academic uh, teaching. And so this is a facility to educate young um, architects, landscape architects, property students, uh, urban, and planning, uh, urban planners and statutory planners. Uh, in this one large new super faculty. The idea that we would orchestrate a series of timetable spaces along the university's major civic street set for us in train a whole series of um, design strategies about uh, free association, about uh, scripting of, 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 of purpose, about flexibility and so forth, and drawing those as, as much as we could into um, the urban framework of this part of the campus setting. So we looked very carefully at the studio. We made these raw studios we, that would allow us to, the students to appreciate the nature of space, its primary and secondary structures, its serviceability and so forth in these very raw spaces. What particularly interested us was the periphery and drawing together both the, the timetable and scripted uh, uh, spaces of the studio with the free spaces immediately to their edge. So at each level uh, there has a passive wall of the studios, they open out into a series of, of areas of inhabitation of free association. So we imagine the kind of scripted activities of the studio uh, being drawn into the entirely unscripted uh, spaces immediately to their edge. And that allowed both the, the character of the architecture of the interior and the almost civic-like qualities of this vast central space that was then created. And new settings were created also, so an amphitheatre that would generate the kinds of activities one may expect inside a building to be actually um, points of assembly at the edge of the building and scripted activities uh, that would actually affect the nature of campus activities themselves in a series of new courtyards that were created. We looked very carefully at then at ground planes and an artificial elevated ground plane of what we described as this crust, this layer of um, sort of quite convoluted uh, precast concrete that suggested a topographical upper layer of a landscape and, a, and a internally uh, the setting for the primary civic space within. We looked very carefully at the plan and seeing if we could actually excite activity and curiosity not only for the students that would actually inhabit and be educated within the space, but those that may pass through. There was sort of a canniness to this. We thought, well, at least hopefully those studying law and medicine might become infatuated by the practices of architecture early on and become great patrons sometime in the future. And so this has become one of the university's great diagonal pathways right through one door and out through to the other, and it's a constant and very active space. We very looked also then the way we could actually tease that out and, and orchestrate the kinds of uh, excitable uh, observations that people would have by putting the two most opposite spaces within the brief, 
uh, the library, and in this case a very august uh, academic library over two levels on one side of that busy street, and the workshop, the most noisy, bustling and active space on, it, on the other, as these two diametric opposites. We're also very, look very carefully at, um, again, the, the, a very enduring master plan of that campus and the qualities of both of the recalled and recent history also. There was always a very important civic, civic lawn across along this edge of the building. We wanted to put um, over half the library down under the ground and so as a way of sort of signposting this, we actually replaced... We built most of the library under the ground under this lawn, we put the lawn back on it and then inflected its surface to give some kind of clue that there was some new force at, uh, at play here and a new occupied space immediately beneath the, the, law, the lawn. And that then allowed this rather remarkable exemplar of incredible concrete, uh, in situ concrete formwork that then created this new ceiling profile of the library underneath. And again, delving into the, the, into the history, the lost history of the campus, what is currently the central campus courtyard space was once uh, a lake and before that a swamp. So imagining that and recalling that, we imagine that this pathway that we'd created through the base of our building may have once been a small creek bed that found its way meandering through to the um, centre of campus to that vast swamp that then formed a, a civic lake, now lost with the further development of the, of the campus. So like the sedimentary layers of a, of a creek bed, everything from chair to table to every surface was rendered in beautifully constructed concrete and, and then this undulating form and, and slight sway was created as if the creek bed gaining momentum had actually formed these artificial edges in its wearing its path through the sedimentary layers of some lost rock formation that made its way to the centre of campus. So here we are on one side, library, the other side, uh, workshop. And from there, drawing our way down to a series of massive lecture theatres, the largest lecture theatre on the campus, and a, a series of smaller chambers, and then up through to this major civic space set right within the heart of the building above. We think it's very important that we create buildings that, invite, that excite curiosity and question the nature of how we inhabit space. So we look very carefully at, uh, at the sorts of things. You know we have a bias towards ceilings, so we created one that did more than our ceilings normally do. Uh, we had to keep uh, a historic facade that I'll show shortly, so the idea of, of inflecting that facade and giving it new purpose by a new internal character, and then looking very carefully at the means by which students from various different educational strands may chance upon each other in the processes of, of um, navigating their way through a very dense and complex uh, building. So the recalled history, we did have an... I think we had a bit of an insider's knowledge that there were six finalists, uh, two local, four international. Um, there was a speculation we were invited to uh, whether we would keep this historic facade. There was a remnant facade. It had originally been an old banking chamber in the centre of Melbourne. It was brought here in the 1930s and reassembled in the front of a very prosaic 1930s building. Uh, and it was, we were asked to speculate whether we'd keep it or not. We knew full well that absolutely no way known was it could ever be lost, so it gave us uh, an accelerated vantage point, I think, in, in, the, uh, in that competition process. As we looked not only at, at its use, but also the way we could provide new relevance to that um, Victorian facade. 
it becomes the centre of our um, of the primary elevation onto the centre of campus where that lake once was. But more importantly, we created a new interior. So we saw the facade as a myriad of oculi, each of those windows. We, looked at, we drew on our fascination with perspectives and created a series of ruptured wall experiences that uh, created new perspective views into parts of a large exhibition chamber that occupied the space immediately behind over three levels. We looked, and this is the way we communicated with NADA. This is a, a, a screenshot of, of our discussions. We, we, we got on very well. We allowed each other the privilege of sketching over each other's drawings day and night. And here we are speculating about the creation of a vast civic space in the centre of this building, one floor above ground level, and the kind of nature of that space and the sorts of things that would invite um, particular uh, interest to that setting. So we looked at the ingress of light. We created a, um, a large glazed roof. We looked very carefully at the orientation. So like these other roof studies that we've, I've shown before, it drew in south light, some east light, but as, the, as then the inflections of each of these coffers work, then ex, uh, excluded north light and completely excluded west, uh, Melbourne's hot west sun. But also then it does something more than any roof we designed before, and, in our, and again in our intense discussions with NADA, as part of this invitation to uh, um, enhancing curiosity, it's sent at mid-span, mid this roof sort of heaves under the weight. You can see the bending moment diagram through that roof as it supports this um, three storeys of studios at mid-span. So it creates this great civic space, um, the sort of thing that draws in light from both the area immediately behind the vantage point that this photo is taken, but the roof itself, and has many of the characteristics of exterior space drawn into the, right into the dense heart of this building. But looking very carefully then at the way we orchestrate the, the, the settings that have been created and the scripting and the, and, the, and the knowledge that people will have of those spaces from the way windows are exposed to view various parts of the working interior to the kind of diagram of the acoustic modelling of, of where acoustic attenuation is set from the top of the building very down to the lowest. And the whole thing sits just above um, head height. In fact, particularly tall people do hit their head on the very corner there. But that, the intensity... We're, like there was a change of government halfway through this and the then Premier would have hit his head on the on that point, the, the current Premier wouldn't. Um, and this vast suspended studio comes to the point where it's at its most tactile and, and most appreciated into this crystalline pattern of, of, uh, that, again, suggests the acoustic modelling of, of the requirement of containment of the people and the activities in that vast hall surface beneath. And learning from others and a fascination we've had as a practice for many years of the work of Jose Plechnik and our, our love of Ljubljana and the, the many adventures and the learnings that can be had by the experience of that city. Him designing three bridges where one would do to, to cross the river as a means of, of social engineering became for us the opportunity to design a staircase. And imagining students that professionally, we would say, as professions between planners and architects and, and builders and landscape architects, one problem that is often the case is that we don't share enough of a common language and maybe if during the course of their education we could cause them to bump into each other more often we may 
have some kind of curiosity at least evoked by that. So these very complex series of staircases all meet at centre span. There's the opportunity to meet, be distracted by the meeting, turn and turn and then head back in a completely other direction. So um, it becomes sort of the complex centrepiece of navigation of the building as a whole. And from there to something absolutely opposite. Um, the op opposite to our experience of inhabiting a very gritty part of, of urban Melbourne uh, is this place that I've described earlier, Waterview, the property on uh, Bruny Island. For many years I'd taken our staff down tree planting in the middle of winter. We planted over 9,000 trees on that property over that period of time. Um, I was getting strong signals back from my staff that tree planting in Tasmania in the middle of winter was becoming less interesting, so <laughs> last year harnessed a series of ideas, and I think this typifies the work, so much of our practice, that through conversation, it's, it's the work of so many people coming together. Many of our, I think our best projects have started off with singular or smaller ideas that somehow have grown in their ambition over time with the accumulation of the input of many. So this started off with, oh, maybe I better then hire a carpenter for the three days and they can learn to build something. So by the end of it, we engaged two carpenters, three carpenters, uh, a specialist woodcutter, a stonemason and an arborist, um, and thankfully a photographer, and spent three days down in Tasmania under the guidance of people more skilled than ourselves, and particularly our younger staff as young architects, learning processes of that important act of making of timber work, of stone work, uh, of eating constantly. Uh, prefabrication, as so we made a small bridge in the machinery shed, uh, of appreciating the skills of others and getting to know the locals. And this is a visit to Bru North Bruny Island's Beer Can and Chainsaw Museum, one of the highlights of, <laughs> of our region. Uh, five years earlier, we had um, given pro bono services to design this building, an art gallery, um, shop, uh, hall and cafe for the local community in appreciation they put on a, a remarkable dinner for us. We then on the last day, it could have been a disaster, the whole thing just worked um, to a remarkable effect because nobody knew really what each of the other groups were making. Um, we walked around and assembled each of the objects so the bridge came down to create its first crossing of a small creek uh, the style over the fence, the scale was a bit wrong. You'd walk up nearly three metres to cross a metre-high fence, but apart from that, it's near perfect, made by our two youngest staff members. We walked to the stone project, but the, by then an outcrop of rough stone had been hewn into the most perfect um, sleeping platform and, and fire pit, and then walked round to the bird and observation platform that acknowledged a particular moment in the coastal edge where sea eagles fly with almost daily precision, and assembled ourselves in appreciation of our moment of learning of the skills of others. And each of the three nights sat and particularly drank away the evening and recalling lessons of our own learning in that remarkable place. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.